we grew up in a very conservative group and were raised and married and had our three children while we were in this society. Our family and friends were in this society. Everybody we knew was in that society, really, the people we associated with. We believed what we were taught. So after we married, we passionately gave our energies to this cause and to this belief. Our efforts were accepted and we became busier and busier until we were no longer able to even make our own choices. And the more we did, the more was wanted from us, the more was demanded. Finally, we were in a hamster wheel we couldn't satisfy, and it seemed impossible to stop. At about that time, Lenora's health began to fail. So I started looking for doctors and only found that they didn't have answers for my problems. After a time, the common thread of advice was that I needed a psychologist, which in that society was not allowed. So we procrastinated. Meanwhile, my health continued to decline. As her condition worsened, we were spending more money than we had. Finally, the day came, we went to a psychologist in a state of an emergency. At that point, we were completely exhausted. We were in despair. We were without hope. We were being constantly called into meetings by the society where we had been, the church where we had been, and they kept asking us what was wrong and accusing us of a lot of things that they didn't even know and we didn't know what they was talking about a lot of the time. Financially, we were depleted, emotionally completely frustrated, and we were hopeless. Meanwhile, both of our families, being in that society, turned their backs on us. So we really had no one. The leadership of that society told us untrue stories about us that were believed and we couldn't defend ourselves. So our whole world turned against us. At the psychologist's office, I described the sexual abuse I suffered as a child as the psychologist asked questions about my childhood. When she explained the symptoms of this, our eyes began to open to a world we never knew was there. That's about the time that God came on the scene and began to open my eyes. To me, he used that doctor, he used those doctors, and he showed me how judgmental and legalistic and pharisaic way I, of I was doing and what, the way I'd been living. I was completely misunderstanding the grace of God. This realization began changing our lives in a profound way. We did not choose to make the change, it didn't seem like. It seemed as if God was saying, now I want you to change. Two things at that time changed for me. I began to give my full attention to restore Lenora's health and I began understanding the grace of God differently than I had before and that made me understand her differently than I had before. We didn't know what to do or where to go but when God put people in our path that pursued us, there were job opportunities that opened up away from our area. One was in Perkins, Oklahoma. The job was for three to four months, so I rented a house over there to live in. 
And the second day we were there, Lenora was at it, went to the grocery store, and when she was in the parking lot, here come a man out there, and he said, could you guys come over for supper? And she had never seen the man before. And we took them up on their invitation and went to their home. And uh, we then they invited us to come to their church. This group of people took us in and became our friends and showed us all kinds of love. And uh, they were very kind to us, and it was a step in our journey. A while later, another job opportunity opened up, and we went to the Dallas, Texas area. And something told me, if you go there, you need to go to this church. And I knew if we got that bid on that job, we were going to go to that church. It was Chuck Swindoll's church, Stonebriar. And we did. The first Sunday we went, God put people in our path again. We sat by a lady that met us and took us to meet Chuck. And then she said, come with me to Sunday school. You've got you to gotta come to this class. And we didn't know why, why it was such a big deal, so that, but we went. And it was Stan Toussaint teaching that class, and we learned so much sitting in his class. We met another couple at that same time. They pursued us. They found out who we were, and they wanted to get together with us. And we found out we came from similar backgrounds. So as we shared, they ministered to us, and we to them. We laughed and cried together, and we'd meet a lot, a lot of times on Sunday for lunch. Then there were three or four other couples that ministered to us in deeply by letting us share our story and then giving us direction and telling us what to do and uh, just helping us in so many ways. They, they prayed with us and cried with us and worried about us and asked about us. And these people have been, had been complete strangers to us. It was as if God brought them to us and told them to take care of us and show him to us. And they did. It wasn't anything we chose to do. Even the job wasn't our choice. We didn't have any work at home, so we didn't have the choice. So when we came home from Dallas, we got that job done finally, and we, we bid several more of those jobs, never got any of them. But after that, some work opened up in the local area. Then we began to look for a new church home. So we planned on visiting local churches to see where God wanted us and when we arrived at Community Christian Church, God said, stay here. Something just seemed right. And here again, God assembled his army to catch us, to help us, to minister to us. And they invited us to continue to come to the services. And, and so it was at a time in our lives when we couldn't even make choices and circumstances were out of our control. God stepped in and took control. It was a little bit like that poem that we hear and that see a lot of times we always had on our wall that when there was the man asked what God, well, why in the worst time of my life was there only one set of footprints? And God told him that was when I carried you. And that's the way we feel. Lance and Lenora for giving their testimony to us today. He used the word journey. I don't know if you caught that in his testimony, and, th and that is a good word. It is a journey that they have been on for over five years now, where the Lord has brought them from this place to this place. And I, I think Lance and Lenora would agree that there, there is still 
a part of this journey left yet. And they are holding God's hand. They are trusting God to continue to lead them in this journey that they are on. Uh, the kind of change that they have gone through, it, it doesn't take place overnight, nor does it take place without a lot of sleepless nights and heart-wrenching days. Thankfully, God has brought them to this point in their journey, and we are thankful that he has brought them to our church, and, and I'm thankful that we as a church body have reached out to them and loved them and, and cared for them. Maybe over the days ahead, you'll have a chance to get to meet Lance and Lenora personally if you haven't had that chance already. It's a reminder to me that each of us need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. We as individuals when we start adding to this book or when we start taking away from this book, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. But when we hold on to the message of this book and to the Lord and Savior of this book, then we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And I think that's the wonderful thing for Lance and Lenora. They have been set free from all of the rules and regulations that have held them in bondage for so long. It indeed has been a journey for them. And, and you know, really, the truth is, every single one of us are on a journey. And, and this road that we are traveling, the road called life, it's not always a straight and smooth road, is, is it? It's, it's not an easy road for us. Sometimes, the road that we are traveling has mountains to climb, it has valleys to go through, our road has some bends in it, some chug holes that can be pretty deep and damaging to our life. As we travel along this road, there are people along the way that we have to deal with. People who hurt us. People who have disappointed us. People who have said words to us that those words have been like a sword that have gone into the very depths of our being. There will be people on this road who betray us and deceive us. They will make promises to us and then they will break those promises. And sometimes those people who hurt us are those who are the very closest to us. It may be a spouse who has been unfaithful to us. It may be a parent who has abused us. Or maybe they've been absent from us. Maybe it's a sibling who has hurt us deeply. Maybe it's a best friend who has walked away from us. Or, or maybe it's a business partner. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a complete stranger who has hurt us. Maybe it's someone across the church aisle who has hurt us. Maybe it's the one who stands in this pulpit who has hurt you, who hasn't lived up to your expectations. There are all kinds of people who have hurt us. The question that we have to deal with and wrestle with is this. Are we going to forgive them when they hurt us? when they do us wrong. 
Satan obviously doesn't want us to forgive. God, on the other hand, wants us to completely forgive, and it is one of the hardest battles that we have to fight. We have been looking at the life of Joseph over these last several weeks, and certainly Joseph had such people in his life who hurt him. Of course, there would be his brothers who had sold him into slavery and separated him from his father. Thirteen long years passed by of hardship and bondage and false accusations and imprisonment and loneliness. It seemed like for Joseph he would go from one hardship to another and any hope of, of that changing had long since passed in his life. It must have been so hard for Joseph not to become bitter towards his brothers and to hate them for what they had done to him. When he looked back over his shoulder to see all of these hardships that had come upon him, he could point to his brothers and say, you are the reason for all of this. In fact, 13 years turned into 22 years before he would ever see his father's face again. Oh, the temptation to be bitter. The word bitter means to be resentful, to have a harsh and angry spirit towards someone. Not only did Joseph have his brothers that he could be bitter towards, there were other two other people that he could have been easily bitter towards. He could have been easily bitter towards Potiphar's wife. She had falsely accused him of trying to rape her, and because of her deception, Joseph ended up in prison for several years, and that was no easy road for him. Psalms 105, verse 18 says, They bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons. I want you to imagine that in your mind. Not only is he thrown into prison, He has shackles around each leg, and he has irons, a a piece of iron around his neck, clocked tight. That's the condition that Joseph was in, in prison. And it would have been so easy for him, so natural, so humanly justifiable for Joseph to become bitter towards Potiphar's wife, knowing that she's the cause for him being in that prison. And a lot of people would have become bitter towards God in that instance. But Joseph didn't let that happen. He decided to bloom where he had been planted. And then there was the cupbearer. Joseph had interpreted the cupbearer's dream, and as he did so, he put in a personal request. He said, would you please remember me when you are back serving Pharaoh? Would you put in a good word for me? I do not belong in this place. I am an innocent man. I have done nothing to cause this imprisonment. Would you speak a word to Pharaoh about me? And the cupbearer forgot all about him. 
and two more years went by and Joseph sat in that prison cell and as far as he could tell, he was not going to get out of that prison cell. He, he, he may just rot in that prison cell. It would have been easy for him to let bitterness take over his life. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 compares bitterness to a root that grows and grows. If you don't tend to that root, if you don't stop it, if you don't give attention to it, it will grow to be a bigger and bigger problem until it affects every area of your life. Let me say this. I have been amazed over the years at the number of people in church who are carrying grudges towards someone in their past. They are letting bitterness grow and fester until it controls them. If that's you, this sermon is for you this morning. And you need to listen to this sermon and you need to do something about it. God is calling you to let go of that bitterness, to just give it to Him. He's wanting to set you free this morning. Let me mention to you just a few of the areas that bitterness will affect. First of all, bitterness will affect your health. It will affect your blood pressure, which in turn can affect your arteries and all of your major organs. It can affect your level of anxiety, which in turn can lead to ulcers in your stomach and digestive problems. It will affect your mental state. It will affect your emotional state. I am telling you, bitterness will take years off of your life and you may think that you are justifiably right in how you feel towards that person but the person that you are really hurting is you if you have bitterness towards another person you're not hurting that person you're hurting yourself you are the person who is in bondage if you have let bitterness overtake you but not only will it affect your health, there's something else it will affect. It will affect your relationships. I mentioned to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It's a good verse for you to memorize that you can guard against bitterness in your own life. Let me quote it to you. It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. You see the last part of that verse? This thought about many will be defiled by your bitterness. It will affect your relationships, those that you have. It will affect your relationships at home with your spouse, and it may not even be your spouse that you are bitter towards. But if you are bitter towards someone else, it will affect your relationship at home with your spouse. It will affect your relationship with your kids as well. Because this root grows and it grows. And as it grows, it becomes between you and your spouse, it will come between you and your kids, it will defile you, the scripture says. It will affect every relationship that you have, it will affect your friendships. 
People will turn away from you. They do not want to be around a bitter person because you defile them. You have an an, an aura about you. They don't want to be around that. And so this is what the Scripture means when it's talking about our bitterness defiles us and it defiles others. It's affecting your relationships. The word defiled means to be polluted, to be contaminated. Mark it down as the truth. Bitterness will pollute your relationships. Let me say this too, thirdly, bitterness will affect your spiritual life. And how could it not? All of this is interconnected. Our, Our spiritual life is is connected to our physical well-being and our social circles. Those whom we are around. All of this is connected together and certainly it will contaminate your spiritual life. It will poison your spiritual life. And and this root, as I said, as it grows, not only does it grow between you and those social relationships that you have, it will grow between you and God. The bigger the root of bitterness is, the further away from God you will become. And you may not even realize it's happening. But it's happening. If you have bitterness inside of you that you're not dealing with. I'm telling you, my friend, it's not worth the high cost to even let that root start to grow. For as it grows, your heart will harden and the, and the voice of God will become harder and harder for you to, to hear. Bitterness will affect your spiritual life. And it will affect your eternity. That's the fourth point here. The scriptures are very clear. If you want to be forgiven by God, then you must offer forgiveness to your fellow man. Let me read to you a couple of scriptures that give evidence to that. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You may be familiar with this passage. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's right there at the tail end of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is teaching his followers how to pray. And this is what he says. You remember up in the prayer itself, the prayer is, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's verse 12. And he goes on, lead us not into temptation. Thine is the kingdom and the, and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then the very next phrase that Jesus says here. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You can't get any more clear than that. Forgiveness is so essential for our eternity. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus again here is speaking. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive 
neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Forgiveness is an absolute necessity. Now, I am not saying that it is easy. Nor am I belittling the hurt that you may feel. Lots of people have deep, real hurts. They have had people come against them and do some terrible things to them. But when faced with the question of what am I going to do with that hurt, we must forgive. Let me remind you, this is a spiritual battle that we are in. Satan wants to destroy you through bitterness. You remember a few weeks ago I was talking about the, the discouragement factor that Satan has this quiver called discouragement and, and it's strapped onto his back and he reaches out and he pulls an arrow and he aims that arrow at us and he sometimes that one arrow that he will pull out of that quiver is the arrow of people. People discourage us. Well, they discourage us to a point. They disappoint us. They hurt us to a point that sometimes we are very offended over that. And we have to deal with that. We have to forgive. Otherwise, we're going to be letting this root begin to grow. This root called bitterness. And God wants to help you. He wants to bring his hand down to you and lift you up. He wants to help you overcome bitterness. And on the other side of bitterness, he has a plan for you. And that plan is spiritual maturity. He wants you to be a stronger Christian. So let me give to you some suggestions on how to forgive this morning. This is, this is where we're we're going for the rest of this sermon time, how to forgive. And, and, and these points that I'm giving to you are going to be very reminiscent of what we have talked about over weeks past. The first point in how to forgive is give it to God. Trust Him. And this is a point that we have looked at every week throughout this series. I told you at the beginning of this series that we are talking about trusting God. This is a theme throughout the series. When pain comes our way, the, the, the way to deal with that is to trust Him. And I hope that it does, this, this isn't a wearisome thing to you to hear this over and over again. Instead, I want it to be something that is pounding it deeper and deeper and deeper into your mind and into your heart to understand that in Every circumstance, no matter how difficult it is, I must trust Him. I must give my situation to Him, knowing that He is bigger than my hurts. He is the great comforter and the healer. He is the God of peace, says Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. And I understand that it is through Him that I gain peace of mind. And it's through him that we gain victory over bitterness. Uh, his son Jesus shed his innocent blood so that you and I could have victory over sin, including the sin of bitterness. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world 
our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you have Jesus in you, then you have the opportunity to have victory over bitterness if you trust him. Think about that. If you have Jesus in your heart, you have the victory right there before you over bitterness. What you need to do is grab hold of him and let him help you in this battle. Let him carry you through this temptation and this struggle to hold a grudge against another person. Listen to this promise from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. God's promise is very clear. We do not have to give in to this temptation to be bitter. His power is stronger, and it boils down to whether we're willing to trust him. And it really doesn't matter how difficult, how offensive this person has been to you. God's grace and God's power is stronger than that offense. That's, again, not to belittle the defense, the offense that you have towards that person of what they have done to you. It's just saying... This is how powerful the grace of God is and the power of God that whatever it is you're dealing with, God is stronger if you'll trust him. Let me give to you a second point here as we're talking about how to forgive. Give up your need to retaliate. Let God handle that end of things. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hear me say this. God can take care of vengeance a whole lot better than what you can, if indeed vengeance is needed. Just as he is perfect in his grace, he is also perfect in his vengeance. And Paul is saying to the church at Rome, you don't worry about retaliating, taking vengeance upon that one who has offended you, because if vengeance is needed, he's able to do that. And he'll do it a whole lot better than what you will. And that's why we just need to give it to him. Let him take care of it. Don't you think it was tempting for Joseph to take revenge upon his brothers as they stood before him asking for food? Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What they have done to you. And now all of a sudden you are in a position of authority and your brothers are standing before you and they are asking you for food. 
You're talking about an opportunity to take vengeance upon them. He could have said this. Here, let me give to you what you deserve. Do you know who I am? I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. You remember me? Look at this face. I'm your brother. Let me give to you what you deserve. Let me have you taste prison like I've tasted prison. Let me have you suffer like I've suffered. Let me, let me get even with you. No, no, I don't want to get even with you. I want to get ahead of He could have thrown, thrown them into prison, but, you know, he could have also had them executed right there on the spot. He didn't do that. Through a series of events, of events which I'm not going to cover in detail, that's your responsibility to read the story of Joseph and how they, they just went back and forth for quite a while. But eventually, Joseph offered grace to them. If vengeance was to be taken, that was God's job, not his. And I'm just thinking in my mind, what a better world we would be living in if we could learn this lesson. Don't you think that our marriages would be so much better if we got to that point where we realize, I I really don't have to retaliate. give that to God and any relationship that we're talking about any offense that comes against us I really don't have to retaliate I don't have to take vengeance I mean think with me of all of the fences that could be mended in a lot of different arenas if we got to this conclusion that we really don't have to even the score Just give that to God. Third point here as we talk about how to forgive. Look at the bigger picture. And again, this was a point that we talked about here a couple of weeks ago in dealing with discouragement. But I think it, it, it's, it fits here with this story. Genesis 45 is one of the most amazing and emotional passages in the entire bible i can hardly read through genesis 45 without tears to just think about this act of grace that joseph offered to his brothers he said come close to me draw near to me i am joseph your brother Can you imagine how stunned they were? How speechless they were. They had no idea that Joseph was even still alive, much less that he was standing in front of them as the second most powerful man in the whole land of Egypt. And all of a sudden, you know, they had to be fearing for their lives. But I want to read to you how Joseph responded to them in Genesis 45, beginning with verse 5. Now, this is Joseph talking. He says, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you 
to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. What an amazing perspective. He was able to see things through the eyes of God rather than through his eyes of flesh. He was wise enough that he was able to look beyond the present and see the bigger picture. And if only we could do that. To look beyond the present. To look beyond the hurt. To look beyond the offense that is against us. And to see this bigger picture. That it's better to forgive than to be bitter. It's better to love than to hate. It's better to give it all to God and let Him deal with it rather than to take it all inside and let it destroy us. He wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to love like Jesus. He wants us to forgive like Jesus. He wants us to be as gracious towards others as what Jesus is gracious to us. And that that doesn't mean they deserve it. They don't deserve it. But neither do we deserve His mercy and grace either. Frank and Elizabeth Morris of Hopkinsville, Kentucky got the worst of all possible news. It was Christmas, 1982. Their son, Ted, had perished in an automobile accident. When they learned that it came at the hands of a drunk driver, one Tommy Pigagi a self-described hoodlum who walked away from the crash without a scratch. They were furious. How could God allow such a thing? No pious platitudes or recited Bible verses could give them comfort. Their faith was devastated. Ted, their child, had been a model college student, a devout young Christian whom everyone admired and obviously on the fast track toward a life of service and honor. Now, some thoughtless drunk had put an end to all of that and hadn't even picked up a bruise for his efforts. The Morrises became consumed by the idea of justice. Everyone who knew the Morrises sympathized with them. The loss of a child in such a terrible manner is the deepest blow life can offer. And why shouldn't we expect the wicked to receive their 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 due punishment? Tommy Pagagi received a suspended sentence, a slap on the wrist, so to speak. 
Ted's parents were beyond outrage. They couldn't let it all go. Their lives began to revolve around monitoring the activities of Pagagi. Their goal was to catch him in some lawless situation that would finally be his downfall. He would rot in prison or they would die waiting for it. And sure enough, a few months passed by and Pagagi picked up a second charge of public drunkenness and he went back to jail. But once it happened, Elizabeth Morris didn't feel the jubilation that she had expected. Nothing but emptiness. And for the first time in a long time, she took a good look at herself and reflected on her faith in Christ. How did Christ feel about all this anger she had harbored? She knew it was eating her away from the inside out like an emotional cancer. Tommy Pagagi couldn't have been too hopeful when he was informed that someone named Elizabeth Morris was there to see him. But the meeting was a shocker. She came back later with her husband, Frank. The talk was calm, open, regret was discussed, forgiveness was offered. It all led to Tommy being invited into the home of the Morrises. And this, this, when I read this, I just my mouth dropped open with shock. For this is what I read. They legally adopted the man who had killed their son. One night they all attended a meeting of Mothers Against Drunk Driving on the way home. The conversation became more spiritual and personal. At 10 p.m. they stopped at a small church and Frank, a former part-time minister, baptized Tommy Pagagi. Forgiveness, mercy, grace, and the love of God had won out over bitterness. And it's my prayer for you, for me, that God's grace and God's love would win over bitterness. Let's pray. God, help us. I know there are folks in this auditorium today who have some deep hurts. They have been wronged. But you, you never said that we should forgive only if it was a hoax. No, even when we've been wrong deeply, we are to forgive. So help us. Free us. We pray this in Jesus' name.